This week is Parshas Vayetze. And in Parshas Vayetze, we learn a lesson about how to harness our willpower. So the Parsha begins with Jacob, and he just recently hijacked, usurped the blessings from his brother, from Esau, from Esau. And Esau has a murderous vengeance, vendetta, against Yaakov. And he makes a plan, when my father dies, I'm going to murder him. That's at the end of last year's Parsha. Rebecca, she finds out about this, and she says, it's not going to happen. And she sends Jacob to Haran, to her brother's home, to get married to one of his cousins. That's the how last week's Parsha ends. And this week's Parsha, Parsha's Vayetze, begins with Jacob traveling. And he stops, has a very dramatic encounter halfway. Truth is, if you read the story critically, he goes all the way to Haran, all the way to his destination. He turns around and goes back. And he stops in what we know is in the mountain, which is Mount Moriah. And this is the third person to have a stop, a pit stop, and have an encounter, an episode in on this famous mountain, which is going to be, of course, Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And he has a dream, and he sees the angels going up and down, the, uh, down, and then God appears to him, and God's protecting him, and God promises to take care of him, and to watch over him, and to bring him back to the land of Israel, and to give him the land of Israel to his descendants. Amazing blessing. He wakes up, and he travels. He makes a few pronouncements, and he travels to Haran. And there he meets Rachel, and long story short, he works seven years for Rachel, ends up with Leah, works for another seven years, and marries Rachel as well. And then he has 12 children. 11 boys and one daughter, Dina. And afterwards, that's the beginning of the Parsha. And then afterwards, he has an agreement with his father-in-law, with Lavan, that he's going to work and what he's going to be paid. And it's a very long narrative that he's going to work and you get the spotted animals or the speckled animals or the brown animals. And he has to manipulate and to use chicanery. Otherwise, he won't get paid. So this agreement works for a while. And it's he's been there for 20 years already. And he decides things are really bad because he's been very wealthy. This is chapter 31. He's been very wealthy. And everything, every deal that they have, him and his father-in-law, all the animals are born like that. And in chapter 31, Jacob overhears his brothers-in-law, Lavan's sons. They're saying, Jacob has taken all that belonged to our father, and from that which belonged to our father, he amassed all this wealth. They're all envious of him. They're jealous of him. Jacob also noticed Lavan's disposition that behold, he was not towards him as in early days. There was some tension developing between Jacob and his father-in-law. He wasn't as happy to see him. He had a little bit of a... It wasn't wasn't the same relationship the way it was prior. So that's the first thing that happens. And, so this is verse 3, Hashem said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your native land, and I will be with you. So here we begin a transition. Jacob was living now with Lavan and Haran, with his wives, four wives, 12 children. And now God tells him, go back to Israel. Go back to Isaac, go back to your family. 
with everything that you have. And I think if we, if we kind of deconstruct what's about to happen, we'll realize what does it take? Think about it. That's 3,500 years, a long time ago. What does it take to get a family of 12 young kids, young children, four wives, they've been living in a place for 20 years and to travel a thousand miles to Israel? Just think about what, like, what does, what does that entail? And of course, uh, they are, you can imagine they're in school, whatever primitive version of school they had, uh, but they have friends in the neighborhood, and the girls, they've never been to Israel. It's like going to a foreign country. And they have the father-in-law, loved one, and all his sons. Obviously, the sons in the story. Just think about what, like how many hurdles need to overcome to make this happen. But what, of course, listen, God said to go, so we'd go. No matter what the challenges are, if God says to go, you'd go. You don't ask questions, right? That's what you would think. And I, I think if we, if we kind of look at what's about to happen, we have to realize there's a, this is what we call a test. This is a challenge. This is not going to be easy. On one hand, you have what God says to do. On the other hand, we realize that it's going to be very, very difficult to implement. It's going against a lot of what's fixed in their world, right? In their world, this is where they've been living for a very long time. This is where all the kids grew up and they still have a bunch of little kids. This is going to cause upheaval in their world. And I think if we think about what willpower, what does willpower demand? Willpower is always when you have something that's right. That's what God wants you to do on one hand. That's one choice. That's one path to take. On the other hand, you have something which is maybe the much easier path, the path of least resistance, the path that you've been accustomed to, the path that your Yetzer Hara, your evil inclination, wants you to select. And that's the other path. And it's a lot easier to not listen to God or to ignore God or to neglect it. And you need to harness your internal fortitude and willpower to be able to break through all those barriers and to follow what God says. And I think if you look at what what ensues in the story, you'll find a very powerful tactic that Jacob employs and his wife, his wives employ as well. And even though it's a story that happened many thousands of years ago, but if you're able to pull out the core principle of the story, it's something that we could do every day in our lives. Every day we have to use our willpower if we want to obey the will of God, if we want to do what's right. If we want to become great in any field, every field of greatness, certainly in religious, spiritual matters, but even in matters of business or of relationships or of any any number of things in life, very frequently there's a, two paths and there's two choices and you have the option which is easier and the option which is more beneficial but more difficult. And we have to learn to get accustomed to being able to embrace the more difficult but more empowering decision to do that. We're going to need to have willpower. So I want to look exactly what Jacob does and exactly what his wives do and try to see what they're actually, what's happening there and try to pull up the lesson and see how we could use it in our lives. So if you were to say, you know, what, what is the approach to, to take when you have 
such a conflict. God tells you to do something. And Jacob, say the whole verse, the verse says very clearly, Hashem said to him, return to the land of your fathers and to your native land and I will be with you. It seems very unambiguous. It's very clear. God says, go back to Israel. Finished, period, end of story. We're packing, we're out. That's what you would think. That's not what Jacob does. Jacob sent and summoned Rachel and Leah to the field. They're going to have a summit. They're going to have a meeting. They're going to have a convention to talk about this in the field. And what is he going to say to them? Well, he's going to say, God says we're leaving, we're out tonight, pack your bags, right? That's what you think, but that's not what happens. And he said to them, I have noticed that your father's disposition is not towards me as in the earlier days, but the God of my father was with me. Now you have known that it was with all my might that I served your father, and yet your father mocked me and charged my and changed my wage, changed the agreement a hundred times. But God did not permit him to harm me. If he would stipulate speckled ones shall be your wages, then the entire flock bore speckled ones. And if he would stipulate ringed ones shall be your wages, then the entire flock bore ringed ones. Thus, God took away your father's livestock and gave them to me. In one's hand, he gives a whole story. He's talking about livestock and what is going on. Jacob, God said go to Israel. What are you giving a whole speech about your father's not treating well and God's intervening and speckled ones and what's he talking about? And he, he goes through the whole story. And finally, he recounts the actual content of his message. Uh, and an angel of God said to me in a dream, Jacob, here I am. And he goes again, talks about some of the flocks. I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed the pillar at the beginning of the parasha. And we made a vow. Now arise, leave to the land, and return to your native land. Very strange tactic that Jacob is employing. He realizes that this is not going to be easy for anyone involved. He's going to have to do something very difficult, him and his wives. What he is in effect doing, he is shrinking, he is narrowing the test. If you want to have willpower, so there's two ways to have willpower to overcome your challenge. Either you could pump up your willpower or you could shrink the obstacle. If you want to jump over, like a, a, you want to vault over a pole, there's two ways to do it. Lower the pole, higher the jump. What Jacob is doing, he's recognizing that a lot of times when we have to make one of these willpower choices, it's very difficult. And a way to work, work around it is by actually lowering the bar and shrinking what you actually need to do to get there to make that choice. So he's saying, listen, yes, it's very difficult to leave, but is this really such a good place? Look what your father doesn't treat me like he used to treat me before. And he's changed my wages a hundred times. This is, this is a terrible work environment here. And yet, of course, it's your father, but he's trying to trick me at every, at every turn. And yet God's with me. And he goes through everything that's happening. This is not a great place to be. It's like when someone wants to quit. It's very difficult to quit your job. But sometimes you say, listen, I need to quit, but I have to kind of remind myself of why I want to quit to make that obstacle that you need to climb over make it easier. So he enumerates everything that's wrong. Oh, and by the way, at the end, he reminds, oh, and God said to go. So regardless, we have to go. 
The truth is, if he was making a logical argument, like as an engineer would, you would say, listen, God said to go, that's it, even if it's hard. But he doesn't do that. He first says it's not really that hard because here it's really not that good. Oh, and by the way, the real reason why I want to leave is because God said to leave. That's what he, so this is a tactic. Shrink the test. Make it easier for yourself. And only then remind yourself why you want to do it. Now let's look at what Rachel and Leah respond. Then Rachel and Leah replied and said to him, Have we then a share and an inheritance in our father's house? They do the exact same thing for themselves. They also have a test that they need to overcome. They have to leave. Maybe it's even a more difficult test than Jacob. Jacob's going back home. They're leaving their home. They employ the exact same tactic. They don't say, oh, God says to go, we got to go. They remind themselves why it's not all that rosy here. Have we then still a share and inheritance in a father's house? Are we giving up a big inheritance? Are we not considered by him as strangers? He looks at us as foreigners. For he has sold us and even totally consumed our money. But all the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. And then they conclude. So now, whatever God has said to you, do. They follow the exact same playbook. Shrink the test, lower the bar, but the end, the bottom line, whatever God told you to do, do. And I think that this is really a very powerful tool that we could use in our lives. You know, I give the example. We have Shabbos. It's a wonderful mitzvah. Beautiful mitzvah. Very difficult mitzvah. Especially in a time where when someone forgets their cell phone at home and they're halfway to work, it could be they're 20 miles away, but they forget their cell phone. They feel like they left their, they, they walked out without pants. They, right? They feel incomplete. You need to have your phone. Turn around, go back there. Well, what if someone needs to reach me? That's what they tell themselves. But the truth is, is that we become very dependent on technology. And we check our emails a lot. Some people do, or text messages or whatever, or Snapchat. I don't know what people do today. And on Shabbos, if you want to observe the laws of Shabbos, you got to unplug. The average American watches like four hours of television a day, 26 hours with no television, no car, no in turning on light switches and the like. It's very difficult. And that's a, that's a challenge. And someone who's being introduced to this idea, to this new way of life, and they say, wait a minute. I don't know if I could do it. It's so difficult. Oh my gosh. It's, it's like fasting for all of your Kippur. How difficult. And to do it every week? Unthinkable. So there's two ways for us to approach this. We could say, listen, look what the Torah says. The Torah says it's a capital crime to desecrate Shabbos. How can we think about desecrating Shabbos? And that may be technically correct. But that's probably not the best approach. What did Jacob do? Jacob didn't walk in and say, this is the way, my way or the highway. God says this. I don't care if you don't like it. Pack Pack your bags. We have 24 hours till we leave. He doesn't do that. He shrinks the test. He makes it easier. He points out the benefits of following what God wants. This is not a good place for us anyhow. Similarly, when someone wants to 
really engage with the willpower needed to observe Shabbos, what do they do? Is it, really, are there really that the good shows that I'm going to miss? Are they so? Can I can I TiVo them or DVR them and watch them after Shabbos? What am I missing that much? You know, for someone who's fully Shabbos Shabbos observant, you turn on your phone after Shabbos and you're like, what did I miss? I remember in 2003, uh, there was one Shabbos where there was a space shuttle, I think a Challenger or Columbia, one of them, that blew up on Shabbos. It was the one that had the Israeli astronaut. And that was the big news. If you turn on, we didn't have cell phones then or smartphones then. You turn on the radio after Shabbos, everyone's talking about this terrible tragedy. That's the one time you can think of you miss big news on Shabbos. You don't miss big news on Shabbos. I turn it on every month on Shabbos. Every, every Saturday night after Shabbos is over, I turn on my phone. What's going to be? What's going to happen? What did I miss? I miss nothing. And even when the Astros were in the World Series, somehow you got to shul on Shabbos morning and everyone already knew the score. There were guys, the boys, the, like the high school boys, they walk into shul and they're asking all the non-Jews, what was the score? Okay, the Astros won, we're good, we could dive in like a match. We could, <laughs> you don't miss anything. And you're right, like, what, what am I really giving up? And then you look about how lovely experiencing a Shabbos with a family and to have human interactions without smartphones and without cell phones and without distractions and everyone's together. When do you have, you know, during the week, when we live such busy lives, when everyone sits together around a table with no cell phone, no smartphones for an hour, two hours, three hours, talking, sharing ideas, singing, eating delicious food? When does that happen? When can we experience some, a, a deep, genuine human interaction with our family? It's the most important thing we need to do to maintain harmony in our home. That's a beautiful. That's what Shabbos is about for the family. Yes, the reason why we observe Shabbos is because God says you better. True. But how do we approach this? How do, let's make it easier for ourselves. Shrink the test and reduce the amount of willpower needed to at least give it a shot, to try it out. And I think that this, in every test in our lives, we talk about midos, about good character. How important it is to have a good character. So, for example, people get angry. It's a very common human emotion. Someone doesn't be bad to you, you lash out. That's not uncommon. We could certainly say it's not uncommon. And the Talmud tells us that kol hakoes Call mine gehenim sholtimbo. Whoever gets angry, all manners, all types of gehenim, of hell, of purgatory, control him. Now why? So the commentaries explain. Because when someone gets angry, anger is connected to arrogance, to haughtiness. And that is the agent of all manner of sin. And therefore, if someone gets angry, they can commit all kinds of sins, and therefore they have all kinds of Gehenim. That's what the Talmud says. Whoever gets angry is as if they do idolatry. So I'm going to commit now. I have a penchant, let's say, to get angry. Let's, let's imagine. 
And I really want to overcome that. So every time I feel an urge to get angry, I'll say, no, I'm not doing it, I'm not doing it. And I'll, I'll bite my teeth and bite my nails. That's one way to do it. Then maybe that's the appropriate way to do it. Listen, you can't get angry. Look what the Talmud says about people get angry. But you could add another tool to your to your repertoire. There's another tactic here. Use the tactic of, Ab- of, of, of Jacob. I say, wait a minute. Okay, when you get angry, are you more effective as a communicator? No. Are you more likable? Are you more amiable? Are you more gregarious? Are, more, are you more ebullient as a person? No. Do people respect you? More or less? Much less. What do you look like when you're angry? You, you lose control. You act like an animal. And you remind yourself of that and you get a picture of your head of what you look like as an outsider. What are you giving up by not getting angry? Not much. By doing that, you're shrinking the test. You're making it easier and you're minimizing the amount of willpower needed to overcome a challenge. And I think, really, we could think of a million areas in our lives where this is the basic human characteristic. Our sages tell us that the reason why we are here, the reason why we exist, the reason why humanity exists, what is the fundamental underlying purpose of humanity? It's to make choices and to have to be in a flux, to be in a situation where our destiny and our future is not certain. It's in our hands. We can choose. And if the choices were easy, again, that wouldn't be a test. The whole purpose of the world, according to Jewish philosophy, is for us to have difficult tests where we need to really harness everything that we've got to be successful making the right choice. And here we see how Jacob is teaching us a very powerful tactic that we could use to make the right choice. It's not the only tactic. There's many more tactics. But this is not, this is something that we here all use. And I would say it's not only in religious areas, in spiritual matters, in every area of life where they're almost invariably the more difficult path is the one that could potentially yield the greater output the greater result. And therefore, we can really use this in all those areas. And I think it's worth thinking about this, about which where in our lives can we employ this tactic of shrinking the amount of hard work needed to make the right choice. And by doing that, hopefully we'll be more successful.